Hungarian biochemist Katalin Kariko spent 17 years working on a medical idea that was so far-fetched, the scientific community soundly denied her grant proposals. You know, I was demoted from my position. Why were you demoted? Oh, because I didn't get funding. And in the end, she did it. She and her collaborator invented the mRNA vaccine. Without her, there would be no COVID vaccines from Moderna or Pfizer. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Season 1, Episode 2. How We Almost Blew the Vaccine. As I sit here recording this episode, the COVID pandemic isn't what you'd call over, but it's definitely been beaten back. It's nothing like the Death Eater Armageddon it would have been if we hadn't had the vaccines. And I'm not sure you realize how miraculous it is that we got a COVID vaccine so darn fast. Scientists analyzed the coronavirus for the first time in January 2020, and the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines entered clinical testing in April, three months later, and then went into the arms of the first patients in December. It was by far the quickest vaccine ever developed. Modern vaccines usually take 10 or 15 years to create. And to make this story even more incredible, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are both mRNA vaccines, which I'll define in a minute. No mRNA vaccine or drug had ever been approved before. And you know the two companies that developed those vaccines, Moderna and BioNTech? Neither one had ever brought a product to market before. You may know the BioNTech one as the Pfizer vaccine because Pfizer did the manufacturing and distribution. And COVID was only the beginning. The vaccine industry is going to pretty much all move over to RNA vaccines simply because they're very effective. They can be made very, very quickly. And ultimately, I think the cost of goods will be much cheaper. It's also being used for, you know, oncology, so cancer applications, I mean, I think the possibilities are limitless. That's Derek Rossi, a former Harvard professor, a really good explainer, and the co-founder of Moderna. He'll be back. But to me, the juiciest part of the story of all is how we learned to create mRNA vaccines in the first place. 
It's a story of two scientists' relentless, almost irrational devotion to the concept, despite years of rejection, humiliation, and ridicule. This story's redemption arc is so incredible, it almost sounds like cheesy fiction. But before I introduce you to our heroes, I want to introduce you to a little cellular biology. Don't freak out. It'll be fun. I'm going to explain mRNA in the form of a bedtime story. Tinkly music box, please. Once upon a time, there was a sensational little tiny restaurant. The recipes dreamed up by Dina, the master chef, were genius. Miso-glazed lobster tails with sesame bok choy. Scallop sashimi with Meyer lemon confit. Apple galette with vanilla raspberry drizzle. And she did it all in her head. She didn't have to fiddle with ingredients. She didn't even have ingredients to play with in her little office, locked away in the middle of the restaurant. She'd dream up the recipes and then send them off to the kitchen, which Dina called the Site Operations Center, or Site Ops. They turned her recipe instructions into delicious dishes to feed the waiting customers. To hand her recipes off to Site Ops, she relied on her trusty assistant, Myrna, as a messenger. Every day, in the sanctum of that little inner office, Dina recited her recipes. Myrna memorized every syllable and then headed out to Site Ops to relay the instructions to the chefs. They'd make the recipes and send them out to the patrons. And they lived happily ever after. And scene. Wasn't that great? You've just learned molecular biology. Well, kinda. In this super simplified analogy, the restaurant is a cell in your body. And obviously, your cells don't make lobster flambe or whatever I said before. What they do make are proteins, these giant complex molecules that perform just about every important maintenance task in your body. Proteins fight disease, communicate between your organs, convert food to energy, clot your blood, and on and on. Derek Rossi really digs proteins. The real worker bees in the cell do essentially all the cellular functions which give rise to life are proteins. And people don't know that. They think of proteins largely in the context of what they eat. You know, if they're eating steak, they're eating protein or, or, or beans or something if they happen to be a vegetarian. But actually proteins, there's a, a large a very large diversity of them in our cells, upwards of 30,000, and they, they really are the worker bees. And the master chef, Dina, that's DNA, which really does live in an inner chamber of the cell. It's called the nucleus. The DNA keeps the recipes for all those proteins and sends them to the outer area of the cell called the cytoplasm, cytops. Cytops, cytoplasm. See what I did there? I'm a, I'm a punning genius. So DNA lives in the nucleus, which is a very localized compartment of the cell. And proteins are made in a totally different part of the cell called the cytoplasm. And never the two shall meet. That's why we need a messenger. Myrna, the messenger and the star of our story. She carries the instructions from the nucleus out to the ribosomes, the protein-making equipment, in the cytoplasm. And by the way, scientists don't actually call her Myrna. They pronounce it mRNA, which stands for messenger RNA. 
You probably saw that one coming up 6th Avenue. If the recipe is contained in the DNA, which it is, you have to get the recipe to the kitchen. The mRNA is the thing that carries it to the kitchen, and it goes into the protein production factory. I call it the trifecta of life. DNA gives rise to mRNA, gives rise to protein, gives life. I mean, in elementary school, we learn about DNA. But who's ever heard of messenger RNA? It's the neglected middle child. And I'm happy to hear that mRNA is finally getting its due. So here's the question that had been dogging scientists for decades. What if we could write our own recipes for making proteins? Over 4,000 diseases result from mutations in our DNA, including cancer. What if we could step into that process, DNA recipe, ribosome manufacturing, and influence it? Those recipes could teach our bodies to make proteins that cure existing diseases or fight new viruses. That would be huge. Just for example, we know we're going to get more viruses and more pandemics. I mean, they've been coming along every couple of years, right? SARS, MERS, Zika, COVID. This could be amazing. Turns out, we have had some success modifying the DNA in patient cells. DNA, of course, has been used. And if you've heard, you know, you've heard of gene therapy, different types of gene therapy, these are DNA-based. But editing the first step in the process isn't quick or easy or even always possible. Because as you know from our bedtime story, it's a bunch of steps to go from the DNA to the kitchen. We've also tried intercepting the third stage in the process. We've tried making proteins in a vat and just injecting them. And that sometimes works. The first therapeutic proteins came into being in the 1980s. Genentech, a company in South San Francisco, led the way with insulin. And since that time, over 120 different FDA-approved protein therapeutics have been approved and are in use today. But injecting proteins directly isn't optimal either because they can't help you with diseases inside your cells. The injected proteins can only swim around in the gaps outside your cells in what's called the extracellular space. But proteins are not very good at crossing over into the intracellular space. So pretty much all protein therapeutics are limited to deficiencies or diseases that are manifest and treatable in the extracellular space. So tackling disease by modifying the DNA isn't easy, and tackling disease by injecting the proteins themselves is limited. But as Rossi points out, we're forgetting about that intermediate step, Myrna. So, but what about that, you know, neglected middle sibling? You know, like, what if we could hand new recipes to Myrna to deliver directly to the kitchen? What if you could inject modified mRNA? In other words, what if you could shoot the messenger? <laughs> but seriously, folks. But mRNA, on the other hand, you could now have the ability to make intracellular protein therapeutics, which had never been doable before, not to mention extracellular as well. Maybe you've heard of the spike proteins on the COVID virus, the tiny spikes that give the coronavirus its name. You know, because corona means crown. The virus uses those spikes to inject itself into our cells. Most vaccines work like this. You inject a weakened or a dead version of the whole virus into the body. That teaches your cells to develop antibodies, which will attack the real thing if it ever comes along. 
But an mRNA vaccine wouldn't require injecting the whole coronavirus. Our synthesized mRNA could trigger the manufacture only of the COVID spike proteins. Your body would see the spike bits and go, ho-ho, what are those? Those don't belong in here. I'd better manufacture some antibodies. And within hours, you'd start making antibodies that recognize the spike protein. Later, if you ever run into the actual COVID virus, your cells would already know how to protect you. Well, we've tried stuff like that for decades, and we gave up. Until 2005, every modified RNA experiment failed big time. Every time we tried to inject it, the body killed it on contact. Our cells didn't appreciate that we were introducing a brilliant human-engineered invention intended to keep us healthy. It always saw the synthetic mRNA as some evil external virus trying to sneak into our nuclei to reproduce. Here's Derek Rossi again. It's the story of, of when cells and viruses first met one another, really, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. And ever since that time, viruses have been trying to figure out ways of getting into cells to replicate, to, you know, complete their life cycle. And cells have been figuring out ways of detecting when viral DNA is injected and combating that by various defense mechanisms. So it turns out that when you try to introduce RNA into a cell, you trip these ancient antiviral pathways, which do a very good thing to the cell. They say, bad news coming in, let's shut down, let's stop protein production. And if it looks really bad, if it really looks like an, uh, an infection, let's kill ourselves, an altruistic suicide. So through many decades, people introducing mRNA into cells were very good at tripping these antiviral pathways, killing the cells in the dish, and basically the field didn't move forward because of that. Is that the same immune response problem that Carrico and Weissman were worried about? It's exactly that. It's exactly that. Uh, and they're the ones that solved it. Okay, you now know what modified messenger RNA is and why we couldn't use it to fight off viruses. After the break, you'll meet the two people who thought they could crack the code and the brutal years of rejection they faced for trying. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. 
Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. And while we're on an ad break, my new book, How to Prepare for Climate Change, is about where to live, how to insure, where to invest, how to talk to your kids, and how to ride out wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, and so on. As the New York Times put it, it's always a good idea to prepare for a disaster you see coming. Pogue has got you covered. The book is How to Prepare for Climate Change, and I think you'll really like it. Before the break, I was explaining what modified mRNA is. But according to Derek Rossi, it's also where the company name Moderna comes from. Actually, I had originally some not so great ideas for the company. One of the first ideas that I had was Harbinger Therapeutics. So, you know, the Harbinger of medieval times was that guy who would ride in on his horse to a town before an approaching army and tell the town that, hey, the army's approaching, here they come. So so it it was basically delivering a bad news. What you thought was a nice, happy town life is all of a sudden about to be overturned by this approaching army. So that was the harbinger. So I thought that wasn't a real great name for the company. So then just one day I was, it just struck me. It was modified mRNA, which we shortened to mod RNA. And then it was not hard for me to come up with Moderna from ModRNA. I was also explaining how a generation of scientists had given up on using synthetic mRNA to fight disease and viruses. Every time they injected the stuff, they got an immune response. Every time, our immune system killed off the modified mRNA as though it were an invading enemy. Most researchers moved on to more promising areas of inquiry. There was, however, one scientist who had not given up and would not give up. So, you know, I am a daughter of a butcher. And when I decided I would be a scientist, I was in high school in a small city. I have no idea. I have never seen a scientist. I just figured out that I would be a scientist and, and I will go to work. Katalin Kariko grew up in communist Hungary in a home without TV, refrigerator or running water. She became fascinated by mRNA in grad school, but when her lab ran out of funding in 1985, she decided to come to the States with her husband and two-year-old daughter. They sold their car for $1,300, and she stuffed the cash into her daughter's teddy bear because Hungarian law limited how much money you could take out of the country. That daughter, by the way, the one with the teddy bear, grew up to become Susan Francia, who's won two Olympic gold medals on the U.S. women's rowing team. That's a harbinger of the kind of family we're dealing with here. Anyway, back to her mom. Katie Carrico, as her colleagues call her, was more or less obsessed with figuring out how to master modified mRNA. 
For 10 years um, at the University of Pennsylvania, from 89, I started there, there till 1998, maybe, that uh, I was trying to use mRNA for therapeutic purposes. And for 10 years, the scientific community thought she was nuts. Can you tell us how much success you had with with grant proposals during the 90s? <laughs> yeah, I did not get money, but uh, they always ask me that, you know, who's my supervisor? And of course, the woman, an accent, probably she wouldn't come up with ideas like that. A woman with an accent, whatever the reason, nobody believed in the idea and nobody would fund her research. She wrote proposal after proposal. In one of the talks she gives these days, she's got a slide that consists of nothing but the rejection letters. So many stories of slammed doors. It was 1993. We went to Princeton and we presented. And uh, they could have been invested. And they promised uh, 70000 That would be the best $70,000. But they never gave me the money. And they never even return my phone call, not even today. I don't name them because they are still around. Well, you know what they say about academia. Publish or perish. If you don't bring in the grant money, you get demoted. And sure enough. You know, I was demoted from my position. Why were you demoted? Oh, because I didn't get funding. Penn took her off the professor track because she wasn't landing the grants. But once she wasn't on faculty, a vicious cycle began. And then later I didn't get funding because they questioned that uh, I am not faculty. Today, how do you think about the people who turned you down or, or demoted you? Do they have good reasons? They said that many things I didn't do well. I could not uh, articulate well enough, you know, the ideas because, you know, I couldn't attract the money. Uh, I acknowledge, you know, maybe I was not doing uh, well because, you know, they couldn't see it. I couldn't explain well. So... Yeah. <laughs> you know, most of them basically said, yeah, we've heard of this before. RNA is too difficult to work with. Uh, we're not interested. That voice belongs to Dr. Drew Weissman. Carrico met him at a pen photocopier one day in 1998. Weissman is a physician and an immunologist who had come from the National Institutes of Health, where he worked on an HIV vaccine with another immunologist whose name you might know, Anthony Fauci. Weissman told Carrico that he'd been looking into using genetic material to make vaccines, and she told him that she'd learned how to modify mRNA. He invited her to join his lab. Which brings us back to that infuriating inflammation problem, the problem that made the rest of the science world consider the whole field a dead end. Inflammation occurs whenever the body doesn't like something. It can be a, a virus, a bacteria... It can be hitting yourself on the head with, with, with a brick. There's lots of different types of inflammation. And it's the body's response. And that includes high fever, low blood pressure, feeling lousy, uh, a variety of things. So that kind of response would not be ideal in a medicine you're giving somebody. <laughs> no, you, you don't want to make people sick with your medicine. Or your mice. Whenever Carrico and Weissman injected modified mRNA into lab mice, they'd lose their appetite or their fur. The mice, I mean, not the scientists. The scientists couldn't get around the immune response problem or the no support problem. Is it normal? 
for researchers to stick at it like that for so long when you were getting so many naysayers? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't let any of my people work that long on something. The, the reason that I didn't give up and Katie didn't give up is that we saw the potential. From, from the very beginning, we knew that there was enormous potential for RNA as a therapeutic. And it was more a matter of just figuring out how to make it work. And there weren't uh, family or <laughs> colleagues saying, dude, what are you doing? It's a dead end. No, I, I would get that all the time. I, I would go to meetings and I would talk with other leaders in science and even Tony at some points. That would be Tony Fauci. And he, he would listen to the data and say, yeah, that, that's really interesting. But what are you going to do with it? And, you know, the, I, I basically knew I was being blown off and, um, you know, went back to work and, and kept working at it. So here's my favorite part. How did you discover the way around this immune response? Yeah, so that, that was years and years of work. Now, I'll let Weissman explain the solution, but first I need to kind of set this up. It turns out that your cells often dress up the proteins they make with little chemical attachments little molecular modifications that make the proteins work better, last a little longer, or whatever. They're like aftermarket mods. You've got the same car, but now it has a nicer stereo. You can think of them as decorations or embellishments, or as Derek Rossi calls them, dongles, if you will. You know, phosphorylation here, ubiquitination there, glycosylation here. It gets sort of decorated with all of these sort of modifications that are required for it to function properly in its day-to-day business as a worker bee. You know what else sometimes comes decked out with modifications? RNA molecules. And some types of RNAs have more of these extra aftermarket mods than others, including RNAs from different animal or bacterial or plant cells. Okay, so getting back to the Carrico and Weissman experiment that changed medicine forever. And the, the key experiment, we took a bunch of different kinds of RNAs. So RNA from bacteria, from mammals, there's ribosomal RNA, transfer RNA, nuclear RNA, messenger RNA, mitochondrial RNA. We we took all of those and we tested them for inflammation and they were all different. Some RNA types triggered the body to attack and others didn't. What was it about the winning types that let them slip by? And the answer, the ones that didn't produce inflammation were the ones with a lot of mods. And what we noted is that RNAs that had a lot of modification didn't have any inflammation. An RNA that had none was highly inflammatory. To test that theory, they whipped up a batch of synthetic RNA that had a mod of its own. They added one molecule, called pseudouridine, and bingo. No more inflammation. Katie Carrico was ecstatic that there was no more immunogenic response, meaning that the immune system just stayed quiet. I was so happy, not just because now that uh, we could make a messenger RNA, which is non-immunogenic, but what was important, 10 times more protein was produced. I mean, you couldn't even dream that, (laughs) that finally is not immunogenic and, and so much more protein is made from it you know, compared to the conventional RNA we made before. They had done it. 
After 10 years on her own, and then seven years working with Weissman, Carrico had broken through the barricade. They had figured out how to introduce modified mRNA into human cells that could trigger the production of any proteins they wanted. They'd figured out how to send Myrna into the kitchens of your cells, carrying recipes that never came from the master chef. They're recipes we gave her to carry. Carrico and Weissman published their results in 2005 in the journal Immunology and then waited for the scientific world to lose its mind. So in 2005, you published this paper. Did it set the scientific world on fire? No. Uh, Drew Weissman said, oh, they will notice, but nobody 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 said anything. Nobody invited us. Nobody cared. They started a company. Nobody would invest. They tried to get grants. They got one. But at least two people cared a lot about the breakthrough. One of them was Ugur Zahin, co-founder of the German drug company BioNTech, which would go on to develop the BioNTech-Pfizer COVID vaccine. He hired Carrico in 2013. She works at BioNTech to this day. The other person who read that 2005 paper was Derek Rossi. When we read the paper, we thought, well, let's try this. And lo and behold, now when we introduced mRNA into cells, we could get it to express whatever protein we wished. And the cells were as you know, happy as uh, pigs in mud. Uh, they were uh, not dying. So this was the key. And it was at that point that I founded uh, Moderna, co-founded Moderna, to to bring this technology to development for mRNA medicines. I got to tell you three things that really struck me about both Carrico and Weissman. First, of course, their sheer refusal to give up for years. Is there something in your character and Katie's character that made you guys so dogged (laughs) to to keep working at it? I, I, I think that's our personalities. We're, we're both pain in the butts. We don't give up. We, when we've got an idea that we think is good, we, we keep going after it. Their employer, Penn, owned their patents and soon sold them to an obscure chemical company in Wisconsin for $300,000. Of course, that was the best deal that little company ever made. It's already made hundreds of millions of dollars off that deal, by licensing Carrico and Weissman's technology to Moderna and BioNTech. Nice going there, pen lawyers. So the second thing that surprises me is that they seem to hold no grudges. They've stood by and watched their invention make millions of dollars for other people. I mean, did you did you want to protect the technology so that so that you would be the beneficiary in, instead of other people? Well, we tried. We just couldn't do it. Um... We tried to license the technology from Penn, but we couldn't come to an agreement with Penn. Um, so we had to give up. Oh, wow. That would make me sort of bitter. Uh, <laughs> is, is there any bitterness on your Katie's end? You know, we, I'm sure we have, we're unhappy about some things that have happened. We're scientists. You know, to us, solving the problem developing the, the new findings, new technology, new treatments. That, to us, that's what's important. You know, grievances, who cares? I have to tell you, I, I was when I was hired at, uh, at Penn in 89, my salary was 40000 a year. 
And for 20 years, so 2010, it went up to all the, all the way to 60,000. My husband once <laughs> told me that uh, probably in the McDonald's, I would get a better hourly pay. <laughs> but it is, uh, you know, I enjoy what I was doing. Listen, uh, if uh, I am 66 years old, my family, my husband, we never had a new car. We always had a car which was coming in a trailer and he fixed it up. Probably I never buy a new car because we are so used to it not to have a new one. Probably I would freak out in the, you know, in the parking lot that somebody would scratch it. <laughs> of course, she said that before she and Dr. Weissman won $3 million from the Breakthrough Foundation which was created by Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, and other billionaires, to reward important achievements in science. Dr. Grieco told the Philadelphia Inquirer that she plans to pour it back into her research and to support science education for financially strapped students. No mention of a new car. And the third thing, they both insist that the glory means nothing to them either. These days, Carrico and Weissman are invited everywhere Institutions celebrate and honor them, and the media harasses them. I mean, my, my family keeps pushing me to enjoy the, the, the spotlight. And if, anybody that knows me, the, the two things I don't like are attention and talking. So to me, this has put me into uncomfortable situations where I'm doing things I don't like and, and taking me away from the science. Does that include interviews? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> okay. For me, it was important that I knew that what I'm doing is good, reproducible, and will be helpful. Even the knowledge that I know that I contributed to something is, is sufficient. For me, I, I didn't need it that people will know that. No, it is not important. I, I know that, and that's it. And many times when I'm thinking about, you know, that... A hundred years from now, nobody will know that we existed. So what is this fighting for? A lot of people think that there's a Nobel Prize in your future. I'm not interested in in money or uh, <laughs> and prize and anything. I was just recently asked, you know, can, can I explain that how to be successful? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Some measures, how many times you fail and you can use you still have enthusiasm and keep your enthusiasm, keep going. That's maybe success. Other people, maybe money is the success. I don't know how you measure it. But being happy is uh, important. Happy, enjoying the work you are doing. And, and how about this for success? How about laying the scientific groundwork that saves millions of lives? Yeah. And more people get vaccinated and uh, they feel safe you know, to uh, go out or meeting their relatives. And uh, yes, I, I am very happy. Speaking of which, Carrico, Weissman, and Rossi all stressed to me that every breakthrough stands on the work done by previous scientists. But as Derek Rossi puts it, To get anything done in science is a large, uh, generally speaking, a large community of people building off the work of others uh, and building on the shoulders of others uh, to move things forward. Science has to work this way, and, and it worked this way very well this time. By 2019, Carrico had been at BioNTech for six years, working on an mRNA vaccine for the flu. BioNTech was already talking to Pfizer about manufacturing and distributing what would have been the world's first mRNA vaccine. That flu vaccine was just about to begin human trials 
when COVID hit. That's one of the reasons we got the COVID vaccine so fast, because both BioNTech and Moderna already had other mRNA vaccines working. Once they had sequenced the coronavirus, they were able to repurpose those vaccines and get them to trials fast. Maybe it's just a coping mechanism, but Catalina Carrico, who spent her entire career working on mRNA, who was rejected from grants, demoted at her job, and had her name taken off of papers, sees all of it as part of the journey, just bumps on the road that led her to the mRNA breakthrough that's now helping to end the pandemic because it led her eventually to BioNTech. I truly feel that, you know, if with my colleague, I'm not going over there in BioNTech. And uh, we work, and uh, I don't think that there would be BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. So we have to thank those people who showed me the door, kick me around. Drew Weissman is still at Penn, working on an even more impressive vaccine. Well, so we're thinking ahead. There have been three coronavirus epidemics in the past 20 years, there's going to be more. I mean, it it would be foolish to think we're not going to have more. So we started last spring working on a pan-coronavirus vaccine. So the next time there's a, a new pneumonia somewhere in the world that turns out to be a coronavirus, we'll have the vaccine made to stop the next pandemic. Derek Rossi left Moderna in 2014, Today, he has two new drug development startups, one working on cancer drugs and the other on a multiple sclerosis therapy. You know what's cool is that the success of these RNA vaccines has led to new mRNA companies sprouting up like mushrooms in Boston, Cambridge and around the planet. An industry has been born, that's for sure. And I think that's great because it just means more money and more resource and more brain power and more people working on cool ways to affect our our health when we're unhealthy. Moderna itself is plowing full steam ahead into more mRNA-based treatments. It's in human trials for vaccines against HIV, Zika, chikungunya, RSV, and CMV, a few kinds of cancer, and of course that flu vaccine. We make flu vaccines as we have since the 1930s in a hilariously old-fashioned process that entails injecting the virus into, I kid you not, chicken eggs. Unfortunately, there are many different variants of the flu every year. So every year, researchers have to guess which flu strains will become common in the U.S. a year from now. If they're lucky and they guess right, the flu vaccine's effectiveness might be as high as 60% as it was in 2010. If they guess wrong, it can only be 10% effective, as it was in 2004. But if we had mRNA flu vaccines, like the ones Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech are developing, we could have the vaccine only weeks after we know about the virus. We wouldn't have to guess which flu strains would be here. We'd know. We could make the vaccine based on the kind of flu that's already here. Oh, and no chicken eggs would be involved. In fact, Moderna plans to combine its new mRNA flu vaccine with its COVID booster shots so that every year a single shot would protect you from both. And it all started with Catalina Carrico and her unshakable belief that mRNA could be used to fight and prevent disease. So I'll give her the last word. I asked her if she had any advice for younger scientists— She mentioned hard work 
and being a good networker with your colleagues, and... It is also important to select a good partner, and my husband is very supportive, so... He was not complaining that I am not cooking, you know, things. And I'm coming home, you know, Saturday and carrying, you know, the little machine. And I ask him to fix it because I need the next day. (laughs) And he was doing that. And um, he was always said, okay, just go. So he was very supportive. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You got got lucky there. What a guy. And I have to tell you, by the way, that uh, when I met him, he was 17 years old. And when we married, my mom didn't even give us a one year. And we were just celebrating 40 years together. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so I, I always was like knowing what I am doing. <laughs> Unsung Science with David Pogue is presented by Simon & Schuster and CBS News and produced by PRX Productions. The executive producers for Simon & Schuster are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Claire Carlander, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and the project manager is Ian Fox. The amazing Jesse Nelson composed the unsung science theme music, and fact checker Christina Ribello positioned herself nobly between my scripts and certain humiliation. Kevin Lee gave this script an additional once-over for scientific accuracy and had some great suggestions. For more Unsung Science episodes, visit unsungscience.com. And for more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter at Pogue, P-O-G-U-E. We'd love it if you'd like and subscribe to Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, would you? Thanks for listening. If you like Unsung Science, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.